chapter uh, 26. I'll get to that message in a moment, or that text in a moment. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, we'll read uh, from there tonight for the message. I was on an overseas uh, uh, trip uh, through last weekend, and I'll be making an announcement about that as soon as I'm finished uh, ministering this evening. Uh, Pastor Glenn uh, announced that we would be fasting and praying tomorrow and Friday, uh, and of course we challenge the entire congregation to join with us uh, and to dedicate this time to uh, praying and laying hold of God, and if you're able to, uh, fasting with us, that means going without food, doesn't mean you put everything in a blender and drink it. But you go without food for these two days, we deny our flesh, and we prioritize uh, the spiritual uh, dimension, and we take time to pray, to talk to God, to hear from God, and so forth. So I want to minister a message that I think will uh, hopefully inspire you to that end uh, from Matthew 26. There are some things in life that people have an absolute aversion to. There's a neighbor that we had. They don't live in the house anymore. Uh, They lived uh, up at the corner. We live in a cul-de-sac. We live at the end of the cul-de-sac, and their house is the first one on the little street we live on. And you could tell that this family does not like yard work. And about every couple of months, we'd drive by the house and the yard would be fixed up and cleaned up. And it was only because the city had come by, their weeds had grown so high. You know, you can get a citation for that. Uh, Ask Pastor Glenn about that when he first moved here. Um, They didn't like yard work and they weren't going to do it no matter what. Anybody said until uh, they were facing some kind of a fine, they were willing to put up with the embarrassment of having the most uh, uh, overgrown, uh, untidy, unkept uh, yard in the entire neighborhood. And in my neighborhood, most people, everybody else uh, uh, takes care of their yard, uh, but they don't because they hate it so much. Now, as I thought about that, probably every one of you has something like that in your life, something that is necessary to do, but you just hate it. I looked up uh, uh, the 10 most hated uh, chores around the house, and of course, it's different with uh, everybody. Some people uh, hate doing laundry. Other people hate cleaning the bathroom. Other people hate doing windows. Uh, and so you can tell a lot about someone uh, by what is necessary to do, but they don't do it. Well, they don't like doing it. That's why. I was walking into prayer room, prayer meeting the other day when we were in Tucson, in fact, at the Tucson Church during the conference. I was walking into the prayer room with Pastor uh, Rene Barra, and uh, as we were walking into the prayer room, there was a mother with a little four-year-old boy, and the mother was literally pulling on the boy, not, not violently, but 
trying to move him along, and he was leaning backward like this. Any parent knows uh, uh, that kind of an experience, and the kid, the child, is whining and crying, and when I got a little bit closer, uh, I, uh, I heard what the child was saying. He was saying, I don't want to go in the prayer room, Mommy. Please don't make me go in the prayer room. I don't want to go in the prayer room. Please don't make me. A little while later, I was praying, and I happened to look up, and there was the mother with the little four-year-old pouting son. She won the battle over his flesh and was in the prayer room praying, despite this little manifestation. So what's the moral of that story? The moral is that it is not four-year-old little boys that are the problem. It is adult Christians. I don't want to go to the prayer room, and they don't. And there's no one to make them. You see, I don't want to go to the prayer room is the language of the flesh. Oh, Pastor, I don't come to prayer because I pray at home. Number one, 90% of people that say that don't. And number two, it's simply the language of your flesh. Now, the difference between you and that four-year-old little boy is that there's no one to drag you into the prayer room. All of us in the next two days, if we agree to fast and pray, we're going to have prayer meetings, our normal ones in the morning, and then we're going to have prayer meetings tomorrow evening and Friday evening. The building will be open from 7 to 9. So we're about to engage in this season of fasting and prayer, and I'm going to ask for these two days, get off social media, get off the internet, get off all of these kind of, just not telling you to do it for the rest of your life and forever, but for these two days, let's dedicate some time to really talk to God and to hear from God. While we are doing that, all of us are going to be hearing from our flesh who is going to cry out very loudly, I don't want to go to the prayer room. This is quite a common voice, I suppose. And I suppose that in a lot of people's lives, that voice prevails. And so while you could come to a prayer meeting, and I recognize that sometimes people by necessity for schedule's sake have to pray at home and they do pray at home. Uh, uh, and that's, uh, uh, you know, that's a given. I, I accept that on uh, some cases, but... If you can come to prayer and you don't, uh, I am wondering uh, if it is the voice of your flesh that is keeping you from it. That's what we're going to try and determine tonight. So I want to preach a sermon tonight called, uh, I don't want to go to the prayer room. From Matthew 26, Jesus is having to deal with the flesh nature of his disciples when he is at a great crisis in his life. Matthew 26, verse 36 is where we're going to start reading. Matthew 26, verse 36. There we go. Then Jesus came with them, with the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. 
Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then Jesus came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And Jesus came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Let's pray, bowing our heads. Father, thank you tonight for your ministering presence tonight. I pray for special anointing on this message tonight. Touch every heart. Make yourself real. Come alive in the heart of every person here tonight, Lord, and we will come to these altars devoted and dedicated, desiring you more than anything else in life, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. I want to talk about three dimensions that are involved in prayer, and the first one is the resistance of your flesh. Prayer is such an incredible privilege, and I'm not talking about the rhetoric that a lot of people will say that's not true, who claim to pray. You ask most people, do you pray? They'll say yes. And they don't really, not at least in terms that the Bible describes a real and a genuine prayer life. Prayer is such an incredible privilege. Consider for a moment what it actually is. Prayer is the language of communication with God. It is something that we have access to do by virtue of our conversion. And why it isn't central in every believer's life is a mystery in light of what it is. We know that the Bible is a book of prayer. The Bible gives reference to prayer over 300 times. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. So virtually one quarter of the chapters of the Bible mention this incredible privilege that prayer is. And most people, many people, don't grasp that. They view prayer as simply asking God for something only when you're in a desperate need. Uh, most people don't have a concept of what God's voice would sound like and what it would feel like for God to actually speak into your life and, and make himself real in your life. And it's very, very clear that any man of God, any woman of God in the Bible that was a great man or great woman of God was a person of prayer who both spoke to God and God spoke to them and they recognized his voice and their life was defined by that word that God spoke to their lives. The word pray or prayer or meditate or seek literally means to intervene or to intercede, to make requests earnestly. 
The Bible gives all sorts of references to how prayer should be manifest in your life. It is uh, the place we go to when we are in trouble and when we have need. Psalms 46.1, God is our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help in time of trouble. So when you get in trouble in life, it is on our knees that we fall. We don't look for other sources first. We go to God first and pour out our need to him. The by uh, prayer rather, is also the place where we can offload our burdens. First Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. You can take your burdens, all of your hurts, all of your woundings of life, all the pressures of life, all the things that you don't have answers for, all the uh, impossibilities of circumstance and relationship and marriage and finance. The Bible Bible says you can take it all and give it to God and let him help you with it. But first, you're going to have to take action and go to him in prayer. Whatever lack you have, whatever need you have, when you need guidance, when you need direction, and you don't know what to do, when you need encouragement, prayer is the place where we hear God's voice. Psalms 85.8 says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. Let them not turn back to folly. So the Bible is very clear here that God has a voice and that voice can be heard by us. It's not an audible voice. It's a still small voice that is referred to in the book of Psalms. But nevertheless, we hear his voice. We respond to his voice and we know when he's speaking into our lives, and the Bible says that God also hears our voice when we pray. Psalms 130, verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. So we have a confidence that when we're praying, God is hearing, God is listening, we get his attention. If everyone on planet earth was praying at the same time, he's able to hear each one individually. He knows you and he knows your voice and he listens when you speak. So why then in consideration of the incredible privilege, the fact that we can interact with God, we can have an audience with God, we can push out all the pressures of life, all the problems, uh, all the worries and all the concerns, uh, and we can bow down and go to God in prayer uh, and have an audience with him. Uh, we can do this at a time of our choosing. Uh, we can do this in the morning. We can do it at noon. We can do it at night. Uh, it's an incredible honor uh, and an incredible privilege. Uh, and so the question has to be addressed. Uh, why is it uh, that we struggle so much? Uh, why is it that so much of that little boy I don't want to go to the prayer room. Why is it uh, that so much of that is in us? Uh, and why is it that so many of God's people uh, have virtually zero of a prayer life? Why do we struggle? If it's such a privilege, if all that I said is true, and it is, you can have an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You can hear his voice. You can fall in love with him more and more every day. You can get to know him more and more. When you're in trouble, in difficulty, in confusion, uh, without guidance and direction, uh, all of that can be acquired uh, if you'll just go to him. Why is it that we don't? 
Why aren't our prayer meetings uh, more full than they are? Uh, Why is it that people who can come to prayer uh, don't come to prayer? There has to be an answer for that. Uh, If it is such a privilege, uh, and if it is all that the Bible says it is, uh, we should be falling over each other to get into a prayer meeting. And I do have to say that our prayer meetings have been growing Morning prayer meeting, prayer meeting before church tonight, and this has been happening for some time, so I do value and appreciate very much the many, many of you who do come to prayer. But why do we struggle so much? I think it's very basic. There are three reasons. Number one is the flesh. The flesh is our fallen nature that we are still in possession of. Your flesh plays an active role in offering resistance to your prayer life. The little boy that I described in my introduction is a picture of the flesh working in all of us, and the flesh has a language, and the language is, I don't want to go to the prayer room. And it speaks directly to your prayer life. The flesh hates prayer, and when you don't have a prayer life, the flesh has won that area anyway in your life. Part of the reason is that your flesh wants to live. The more you pray, the weaker your flesh becomes. Your flesh doesn't want you to pray, and so that little boy is going to pull on you. Mommy, mommy, no, please, no prayer, not today. I don't want to go to the prayer room. Because your flesh wants to live. It wants to dominate your life. It wants to satisfy uh, uh, its pleasures. Prayer weakens the flesh. Prayer diminishes uh, the authority of your flesh. It suppresses its expression. uh, And prayer strengthens the spiritual man uh, and feeds and nourishes the spiritual man. Verse 40 of our text, then Jesus came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said, what? Could you not watch with me one hour, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, so it's going to be one or the other. If you're not going to pray, if you're going to choose not to pray, then your flesh is going to have dominion in your life. If you choose to pray, your flesh is going to have a weaker voice and much less of a voice and you're going to gain dominion and when Jesus saw that his disciples weren't praying he's alarmed and he says listen if you guys don't pray with me now you fall prey to uh, falling into and entering into temptation the spirit is willing your flesh is weak your flesh is weak and if you're not in prayer the weakness of your flesh is what is going to dominate your life, your marriage, your relationships, and your decisions. The second reason I think that we don't pray as we should is that prayer is something that you need to love to do. This little boy obviously doesn't love it, (laughs) right? He may love a lot of other things, want to do a lot of other things. There's things that he wants to do that his mother would not have to drag him kicking and screaming. But this little boy does not love prayer, and neither do some of us sometimes. You haven't cultivated a love for prayer. 
You haven't learned to love that moment that you are alone with God and hearing from God and speaking to God and being strengthened with his might and power in the inner man. What drives me to prayer is not because I have to, but I want to. I'm anxious when I wake up in the morning to get in my truck, drive to church, find my place, and begin to cry out to God. I look forward to seasons of prayer and fasting like we're entering into. And the problem is that we view prayer like yard work or like doing the laundry, or like washing the windows, or mopping the floor, or cleaning the toilet. It's something necessary, but we're going to do it as little as possible. Psalms 42.1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That is a man who is in love with not only God relationally, but in love with the opportunities that are afforded him to pray and to talk to God about need in his life. These are the utterings of a man who can't live without prayer. And I'm always troubled. When people come to me for counseling, it could be a married couple or a single man or a single woman, and they're in distress, they're in all sorts of trouble and difficulty and problems, and they don't know what to do. And I have, over the years, I've learned my first question generally is, well, okay, we'll get to your problem in a minute, but how is your prayer life? So if the wife is there, She's distressed about her marriage. There's trouble afoot in paradise. And she's crying. She's feeling unloved. She doesn't know what to do. I say, sis, how's your prayer life? And very often it's negligent or non-existent. What can I do then? The only way I can help and offer counsel and advice, and the first thing I would say, listen, sis, and bro, you two need to be praying and talking to God. It would be less likely that you'd be as angry as you are, as unforgiving as you are, as bitter as you are, as nasty as you are with the words that you speak if you were in prayer. It's very hard to hate someone you're praying for. If you're praying for your husband and your wife as you should, even in the face of their imperfections and maybe their abuses and sins and violations, God, help me to love my husband, help my husband, help our marriage. That's the foundation upon which I can provide counseling that can be meaningful and helpful. But if you're not even praying for your own marriage, I mean, I am not God. I can't fix a broken marriage. It has to begin with your interaction with God. The third reason that we struggle in prayer is because it requires, prayer does, it requires a discipline. Now, just because you love something doesn't mean you're always going to want to do it, at least when it comes to prayer 
as often as you need to. You may have disciplines, and most of the time you feel, if you, let's say you exercise or run or something of that nature, you do it three or five times a week or so. I mean, most of the time you love doing it, you like exercising, you like getting out and running, but there are gonna be times you don't want to where that little boy of your flesh is gonna say, no, no, I don't want to now. But because it's a discipline, You've already made a decision. I'm doing this five times. We can get up and go. Prayer requires a discipline because you're not always going to want to, even though you cultivate a love for it. Psalms 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon, I will pray. That's discipline. That's not deciding when you wake up in the morning whether you're going to pray or not. That is making a statement every single day. I'm alive on planet Earth. I will pray morning, noon, and night. And then life is just simply about carrying out that commitment. That's discipline. We all live busy lives. If you have a family, if you have children, if you have school drop-offs, uh, house to tend to, uh, uh, all the busyness and problems and pressures, uh, listen, prayer will easily get squeezed out uh, if you don't make it a priority in your life. Uh, evening, the psalmist said, uh, and the morning and at noon, I will pray. You decide about prayer, not on the day of prayer, but you decide what you're going to be doing every day for the rest of your life. That's how discipline works. You don't wake up in the morning and decide whether you're going to go to work. That's already been determined. You don't wake up in the morning and decide uh, that I'm going to be married today or not. That's already been decided. The problem is uh, we don't decide uh, the necessary things of life beforehand like we ought to and make them a discipline. And if you don't make it a discipline, you're going to find yourself going through life in a haphazard very undisciplined way. So the second dimension of prayer that I want to talk about is the battleground of prayer. It's very evident what's happening in our text here. We know the story. Jesus has just performed uh, the Last Supper with his disciples. Now he's taken them into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. The soldiers are on their way to take him. And then he is uh, uh, put on trial, found guilty, stripped, beaten, put on the cross, and he's about to enter that whole arena. And you know what's going on in our text? Jesus is struggling with his flesh. That's what's going on here. He had to overcome his flesh like we have to overcome our flesh. He had that little boy living inside of him. I don't want to go to the cross. Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted. He had to resist that temptation. He had to fight and overcome because though God became flesh and dwelt among us, he was still a man with all of the sim sinful impulses that you have and that every human being has. The difference between Jesus and us is that he never fell, never faltered, never wavered, although we know the Bible is very clear to say that he was tempted, he was persecuted, his flesh was put on trial, and that's why Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, even his own flesh if he succumbs to it. Here's a good question for you to 
ponder tonight. How much of your faculties are controlled by your flesh? We should take a little inventory tonight. Galatians says in chapter 5, verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit. You will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. See, that civil war is going in inside all of us. We want to do right. We want to love. We want to forgive. We want to pray. We want to be in church. But that little boy is in all of us pulling us in the opposite direction, trying to. And these two are contrary to each other. So that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So I wonder how much of your faculties are controlled by your flesh. What about your relationships? How much resentment and unforgiveness and even hatred is involved in your relationships? You can't forgive. You're more angry than you are forgiving. When you're offended, uh, you want revenge. That's all how the flesh manifests itself. What about your marriage? I wonder how much of your marriage is under the control of your flesh, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, a lot of arguing, a lot of silence sometimes. Because the flesh is winning the day. The spiritual man learns how to love and learns how to forgive and learns how to be kind and learns how to be gracious even in trying and difficult and challenging circumstances and situations. What about generally the attitudes of your heart? I wonder if you have any attitudes in your life that are not of God, they're not right, they don't belong in the heart of a Christian, they don't reflect godly virtue. Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was his attitude when he was betrayed and hurt and wounded and kicked to the curb and rejected by a world that he came to love. He had dominion over attitude. He didn't fall prey to anger and hatred in the face of offense, but he expressed love and forgiveness. And I wonder how many of our faculties we have relinquished to the control of the flesh. Our text is a powerful account of the struggle that Jesus had. And I love this text for that reason. Jesus didn't just skate through life uh, like a sailboat uh, in a soft breeze uh, on a glassy ocean. He had assaults and struggles and temptations and betrayals and hurts and wounds of life. And all of us are going to have our crosses to bear, our battles to fight. uh, And what we see in our text uh, is a choice that Jesus made. And he decided that at this crucial moment of life, I am going to fight this battle in prayer. There are a lot of ways that people fight battles and a lot of ways that people deal with stress. Some people will go to the doctor and get an antidepressant. Some people, when they're under stress, will try to escape and try to run. Some people will deal with the stresses of life with drugs and with alcohol. 
They'll go out partying or injecting themselves or snorting something up their nose thinking, uh, I can't take the pressures of life. I need an escape hatch. Others get angry and break things. But here's Jesus at the most stressful moment of his life when he's facing the cross. He's on the eve. He knows what's coming. An arrest, a betrayal, all that he ministered to are going to abandon him, including the majority of his disciples, all of them but one, really. He's going to hurt. He's going to be in pain. He's facing this cross, and he does what he always did. He went to his heavenly Father in prayer. He said to his disciples in our text, sit here while I go and pray over there. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. The Amplified Translation says, And Jesus said to them, My soul is very sad and deeply grieved, so that I am almost dying of sorrow. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that level of pain in your life where you feel sad and deeply grieved and almost dying of sorrow? I know that you have. Stay here, Jesus said, and keep awake. Keep watch with me. And then going a little further, Jesus threw himself upon the ground on his face and prayed. That's what he chose to do in this moment of great stress and pressure and difficulty. And when you're in those moments of life, you have to make a decision. There are people here tonight that this season we're doing right now, tomorrow and Friday of fasting and prayer is right at a crucial moment of your life because you're in the midst of a crisis. You're facing challenges and battles. They may be marriage issues. It could be financial or relational or struggles of uh, every sort in life that you're going through and you don't know what to do. Jesus made a decision that rather than just simply carry this burden, I'm going to go to my heavenly father in prayer. And of course, it is there that he found relief. This is where we fight the battles of life. When you're under assault, when you're struggling, there may be people here that you're suicidal. You, have a, you may not kill yourself, but you have a death wish. You've said recently, I wish I could somehow just die or pass away or get in an accident or fall into the ocean. Jesus chose to fight his battles on his knees in prayer, and that's where you need to go tonight. The third dimension of prayer that I want to talk about is the advance, and this is the most important of the things I want to say tonight. Jesus, in this text, is on his way somewhere, isn't he? And what a place he's on his way to, the cross. That's the place where your sins and mine are put upon him. And he's going to bear the punishment that we were deserving of. And he's going to die and be put in a tomb. And he's going to rise from the dead. Jesus is on his way somewhere. And the next few hours are going to determine the course of history and eternal destiny for multiplied millions of people. Jesus is on his way somewhere, and that apparently is going to require a lot of prayer. And I want to ask you the question, are you going anywhere tonight? Are you going anywhere? 
Or are you just making life up as you go along, making decisions here and there, trying to earn a living and carry on and breathe air and eat food and function? Or are you going somewhere? And by that I mean, are you actively, passionately pursuing the will of God for your life and advancing in his purpose? When you don't have a prayer life, you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. You're going to find yourself sidetracked. A lot of the decisions that you're going to make are going to be the wrong ones. Decisions about relationships and direction. You're going to find yourself in possession of a lot of attitudes that are not of God. Prayer is the only antidote to keep your heart right with God and to keep you on the very narrow path of his will. Jesus is on an extremely narrow path. He doesn't have a lot of options here if he's going to do the will of God. The only option is the cross. It's a very narrow road, very, very tightly fitted guardrails are on that road. He has a very uh, determined march that he has to make in the next few hours. Uh, and the Bible says uh, that he prays himself toward God's will for his life. And there's two things that happen here, and I close with these thoughts. It is in prayer that options outside the boundaries of God's will are removed. The greatest trial of his life, everything is at stake. This is his prayer, and he prayed these words three different times. That tells us that he's struggling. But what he's doing is in prayer, he's reaffirming the will of God. And he's making some determinations. He went a little further, Jesus did, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, listen to this prayer. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Right? So there's a possibility of other options in life. But he goes on to say, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then the Bible says a third time he went and prayed the same thing. The only way, and I want you to hear me so clearly tonight, if you hear nothing else, the only way for you to remain on the narrow road of his will the only way for you not to be diverted and to follow the bells and whistles and distractions of this life is to find yourself buried in prayer every single day. Otherwise, diversion and distraction will lure you away from God's will, will lure you away from God's calling. As a pastor, I see that happen so very often tragically. A person begins to forsake their prayer life it begins to be a secondary issue. No longer is a priority. And then all of a sudden, they're, they're listening to other voices and they become distracted and they become diverted in life. Options begin to emerge. A person in prayer says no to the option. No. I'm on a narrow road to the will of God. There are options. There are a lot of things I could do but I'm on a narrow road 
James in chapter 4 verse 13 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live or do this or that. That's prayer. Jesus is reaffirming the will of God in prayer. And the reason that a lot of people get diverted is they don't reaffirm God's will, God's call, God's purpose for their life in prayer. God's purpose is your marriage. God's purpose is the call of God for you to preach the gospel and be a witness for Jesus Christ. God's purpose is for you to remain faithful and serve in ministry and be a testimony for Jesus. There's a very narrow boundary that is the road. Jesus called it a narrow road and few there be that find it. And the only way to stay on that narrow road is to reaffirm as Jesus did three times in our text the will of God for your life in prayer. No, God, I'm called to preach. I've had to do that thousands of times during the course of my salvation, my marriage, uh, and our calling together with my wife and family. Uh, no, God, we want to leave. We want to go. We want to quit. We want to give up. Uh, but you called me. You spoke to me. Uh, and I'm going to reaffirm your purpose and your will in my life. You must get familiar with God's voice so that it can direct you. If you're going to buy a house, marry a wife, move to a city, answer the call of God to preach, make the big decisions of life, you better learn to hear the voice of God and not your own self-ambition-driven voice that wants to affirm everything your flesh wants to do. I'm fascinated with voice recognition software. I can say to my phone, I'm not going to say it because I don't want my phone to answer me, but I can say a certain thing to my phone and it will start responding because it recognizes my voice. If you try to talk to my phone, it will rebuke you. <laughs> I don't know who you are. Get away. Where's the other guy? A number of years ago, this isn't really new, a number of years ago, Pablo Escobar, the big uh, 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 cartel and, uh, leader and drug dealer from uh, Colombia, uh, was shot and killed in a gunfight with the Federales. And the way they found him was by voice detection software. He lived uh, in a city of two million people in Colombia, and they imposed this uh, uh, voice recognition uh, software over the whole city's uh, telephone system, uh, and they found out where this guy lived. It recognized his voice, went where he lived. He fled, got in a gunfight, and got himself killed. The point is that your voice is recognizable to God, and God's voice should be recognizable to you. Listen to John 10. When Jesus brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, that's us, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger. Too many people are running around following strangers because you don't know the voice of God. You're not in prayer enough to become familiar with God's voice. Uh, yet they will by no means follow a stranger uh, but will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, it's very common in countries where they do still herd sheep in the countryside uh, that at night uh, 
uh, several shepherds will share the same sheepfold. Uh, it's an enclosed area uh, with a narrow doorway. They'll get all the sheep in there, maybe hundreds or thousands, uh, and there'll be seven or eight or ten shepherds. Uh, and uh, what they do in the morning uh, is they get outside the sheepfold, they open the door, and they just simply uh, call out, uh, and their sheep uh, go to where they are because they're familiar with their voice. Sheep are that way. They recognize the voice of their shepherd and they go to wherever he is and they follow him wherever he goes and they go to wherever he directs them. You're going to have to learn to distinguish God's voice from the many voices that are competing for your attention. That's why I'm challenging you during this three, these two days of fasting and prayer uh, to shut down social media, shut down the internet, uh, quit wasting time uh, getting yourself into trouble uh, and start talking to God and getting a hold of God. If you went to the word of God and if you went to prayer as often as you went to your computer and social media and started uh, uh, yapping away and, 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 you know, letting your curiosity run wild and getting yourself into trouble, uh, you'd find yourself a lot stronger spiritually. uh, And you're going to discover that if you'll do that over these next two days, uh, you're going to be a different man or woman by the time we're finished, just in two days. If you'll do that. I don't want to go to the prayer room. We're going to hear that voice. You're going to hear it tomorrow night. Oh, but I'm just going to pray at home. That's just your flesh. I'm trying to help you here. Recognize how your flesh talks. We need a season of prayer. We need these occasions. And I think a lot can be achieved and accomplished in your life if you'll be a part. I want every head bowed and every eye closed. Thank you very much tonight for being here in the audience and comporting yourself to hear from God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. It's a wonderful grace of God here tonight. Perhaps